So it's Psalm 44, the whole psalm. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days and the days of old. With you, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but plant, you, them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did they, their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm, and the light of your face, for you delighted the, in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes, through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have, disgraced, have rejected us, and disgraced us, and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and my shame has covered my face. At the sound of the reviler, of the, uh, sorry, at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart is not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Okay, so we're spending the first, the, the introduction here is going to have to prepare us for how to deal with this psalm. We have to get into the Jewish mindset a little because we're pretty removed from it. Now, oftentimes when people are struggling and they're suffering, it's called going through a crucible of suffering. Now, if you don't know what a crucible is, a crucible is this little ceramic or metal dish container, like a bowl. And you add different elements to it, and then you expose them to incredible heat. And when you do that, the elements inside melt and fuse together, and you mix them up. And what happens is in the crucible, two or more distinct things become a different thing, a brand new thing, as they're melted together. And so it's a great and very apt metaphor for suffering, because as you, anyone who's gone through suffering, significant suffering, not Toronto Maple Leafs letting you down suffering, because <laughs> that would be a terrible crucible. So 1967, that's 50 years of... Anyway, so that's a lot of suffering. Um, they should sell season's tickets with sackcloth and ashes. They should come with it. Anyway, that's not part of the sermon. Um, but it's apt, because if you've gone through significant suffering, you know you come out different um, in one way or the other. Good, bad, different, just, just different. And a woman named Julie Exline, who is a professor at Case Western University in, in Ohio, decided she was going to research, and I don't know if she's a Christian or not, um, but she decides she's going to research what is the effect that suffering has on people of faith. So why is it that some people struggle with deep suffering, and yet their faith gets stronger 
while other people go into deep suffering and their faith gets weaker and they leave the faith. So she wanted to figure out well, what is, what's going on there. And in this article, she's, she's done all sorts of things and it's always faith-based, so she's got a lot of pretty interesting studies. But what she found was this. It sounds pretty harsh, but remember, she's clinical. She says, you know, whether or not people understand it, people of faith go into suffering either with or without an exit strategy. She says that everybody goes into situations of suffering and some people at the end end up walking away from God and others don't, whoever their God is, it could be a Christian God or whatever. And the reason they do is because some people use the suffering as an excuse to get out of their faith relationship. And she's not being harsh. She says the problem was simply that their faith, although seemingly strong, wasn't strong enough to bear the weight of suffering. In other words, they couldn't reconcile their theology with their experience. They thought they believed, but then real suffering comes and they said, forget this, and they walk away. And yet other people go in and they come out stronger. They, they wrestle within their faith and they come out not with an exit strategy. They go in and they wrestle with God and they're angry and they fight and they're really angry, but they don't leave. And she uses, there's examples that are used of this and the two most interesting examples are of one of each. So some, an example of somebody with an exit strategy might be a woman named Marion Fontana. Now Marion Fontana is, uh, was a Christian, spent, was married for 17 years to a man named David, and everything was seemingly wonderful. They were, she was faithful, she says she had a very robust relationship with God. Everything was swimmingly until 9-11, and her husband David was a fireman, and he was called to, the, to ground zero, and he died while rescuing others. And she, later on, would, she really struggled with her faith. She would go to different churches trying to figure out why would this happen, how could this happen. And as we speak about her, we have to be careful. This is not just a subject, this is a human being experiencing real suffering. So when we, when we speak about this person having an exit strategy, please understand I'm not condemning, I understand. Suffering, there's a reason millions of people leave faith because of suffering. So she's experiencing real trouble. And eventually she goes on PBS and she gives an interview. And in the interview, here's what she says. I couldn't believe that this God that I talked to in my own way for 35 years could turn this loving man into bones. I guess that's when I felt that my faith was so weakened. My conversations with God that I used to have, I don't have anymore. Now I can't bring myself to speak to him because I feel so abandoned. And so Marion Fontana is, a sort, is, is an example of the reality. Sometimes people get into a situation and they thought their faith was strong until it was tested in this way, and they say, no, I'm out. And as far as I know, she has not returned to the faith yet, though there's always hope. Now, if that's an example of somebody who walks in, see, Julie Exline, the researcher, would say, you know, she went in and her faith wasn't strong enough. For whatever reason, it couldn't bear the weight of, of real suffering, and so she left. Sounds cold and clinical, but that's, that's what the, the researchers would say. An example of someone who might do the opposite could be somebody like a man named Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel was a scholar, and he went through the Holocaust. He wrote a horrifying wonderful but like haunting book called Night about his experiences in, in Buchenwald and um, Auschwitz. And at one point, he, he got so tired of seeing things. I think I've said it here before. He, had to, he stood and watched a six-year-old boy be hung. And because the boy wasn't heavy enough to break his neck, he struggled for 30 minutes. And Wiesel had to watch him. And after that happens, Wiesel's struggling with his faith as a Jew. 
And then Yom Kippur comes up, which is the Day of Atonement, and everybody, all the other Jews in the camp are fasting because that's what you do on Yom Kippur. They get almost no food, but they're fasting. Elie Wiesel, however, says, I'm not going to fast. I'm angry. How could God do this? He has to account for himself. So Elie Wiesel said, I did not fast. I no longer accepted God's silence. I swallowed my ration of soup. I turned that act into a symbol of rebellion, of protest against him. So here we have Elie Wiesel, a Jew who says, no, I'm going to protest. I don't like it. I have to ask God questions. I don't appreciate what he's done. If he is sovereign, he's the one. He may not have brought this to us. It's the, the Nazis are to blame, but he is sovereign. He's permitted this. So he protests, right? He, he sticks his, his fist up in the air at God. And later on, people would ask him, so what happened to your faith? And he goes on and says, I went on praying. So I've said these terrible words and I stand by every word I said. But afterwards, I went on praying. I never doubted God's existence. And so Wiesel remains a Jew. He doesn't run from the faith, yet he's undergone terrible suffering. And so what is it that allows some people to go through and some people not to go through? And I wish I could say, I wish it was an easy formula for this. It's not really. But a hint of it comes from yet another Jewish writer. And it's important. You'll see occasionally, especially when I'm speaking about the Old Testament, I'll go to Jewish writers, and there's a reason. Because they've been wrestling with these texts for a lot longer than we have. And it's important to see how the Jews saw it, and then to let the light of the New Testament in to inform it further. Similar to reading the Old Testament, then reading the New, and seeing how Paul and Jesus and, and, the, and the New Testament writers interpret what happened in the Old. And this Jewish writer, one more, professor, his name is David Blumenthal, and he wrote a book that is very difficult to read for Christians. It's called Facing the, Abusive, the Abusing God. And he's a Jew, committed Jew, but he wrestles again. He says, we have to wrestle as a people with this God who is sovereign over all, who in the Old Testament speaks almost contradictorily of saying, hey, Assyria and Babylon are doing these bad things to you. But then he says, but I am sending them to you. You know, this paradox, is God responsible or not? Although all the Jews and, and Christians would agree God doesn't, creates sin. He's not the author of sin, but he certainly is permissive in a lot of things that are painful. And so Blumenthal wants to wrestle with this, and he comes to this very, not a unique, it's actually a quite traditional view of covenant, but we lose it sometimes because in the churches we don't talk about protesting God and lamenting and weeping very often. Here's what Blumenthal says. As God is a jealous God demanding loyalty from us in covenant, so we in our searing humiliation demand we transform our anger through the covenant into a more, our moral claim against God. As God is angry with us in covenant, so we are angry with him in covenant. We experience a true anger, which becomes a true moral claim rooted in our mutual covenantal debt. Now this is hard, right? Christians get very nervous here because they're worried. Do we, should we really be talking about being angry at God? And you'll notice if you read the Psalms, hey, the Jews don't have any sort of problem being angry with God. Job had no problem venting with God. And you'll notice in this psalm, God doesn't show up and say, stop it. Stop it. Stop lamenting. He doesn't do that. Then what Blumenthal is saying, he's saying, hey, when God enters into a covenant with us, there's obligations on both sides. He says, I am going to covenant with you, and I will be this sort of a God, but you have to be this sort of a people. And so Blumenthal is saying, we both then have a debt. God owes us what he says he's going to give us, because that's what he's promised, so we have to trust he's his promises, and if we think that God is not living up to that promise, we have every right to ask him, where are you? Why haven't you delivered? 
Why haven't you saved? Why, where are you in this mess? And that is such a challenging thing for Christians to do. And I think that might be why we struggle with suffering so much, is we haven't made much room in the church to allow people to be angry. And we think it's almost sinful to be angry with God, and yet we have 40% of all the psalms are, God, are laments. And we have, what do we, we just forget those? We just forget? Come to church and pretend like it doesn't hurt, like life isn't very difficult and brutal? Well, the Jews had no problem behaving this way. So what we, what we're, we, we see here is a God who says, I want you to come to me with everything, all of it, no matter how angry you are, how joyous you are. You come and lean on me with absolutely everything. The very fact that this psalm, and Psalm 88, another one that's similar, is in the scriptures tells us something. You see, because scripture, a psalm is not just our voice to God, the Jew's voice to God, but it's also, the moment it gets into scripture, it's God saying, this is a legitimate way of understanding me and relating to me. Otherwise, it's not in scripture, right? So we need to wrestle, what is he, what's going on here in this passage? And we know that this psalm is what they call a communal lament. The Jews used it in worship services. You can see that. If you read it and underline the tenses, you're going to notice it talks about me and we. Because it was meant to be uh, something like a, a priest would be leading the service, and I would recite some, and then you would recite some in, in the we voice. And so it was a common, they would sing out this lament to God. We don't know the exact context, what this, what this psalm is talking about, but here's what we do know. Something has happened in the nation, and it's catastrophic. The nation has been, looks like defeated in war, maybe even exiled. Maybe this was written during the exile. We don't know. It's just vague enough to allow us to adapt it to our own lives, which is good. So, we know as well, it, it betrays a, a bewildered, broken, angry, frustrated, and desperate people. And in it, we are seeing a formal protest being lodged against God. It's, almost, it's very legal, actually. We'll walk through that in a second. So Israel comes and says, we have a problem. Here's our protest. Then they say, here's our demands. And then God responds. I know it may be hard to see, but when you see it, you're going to think, oh my goodness, how did we not see this? So God responds. So there's a protest, a demand, and then a response. So the protest. If you're going to make a, a claim against Bell Canada um, because you have a problem with your bill, you must first know what your contract was. Right? So you need to know if they've charged you too much for long distance, well, what were you permitted? And so before you figure out what Israel is complaining about here, you need to understand or help understand what they knew, which is what were, what were the expectations of this relationship? And the cheat, if you don't want to read the whole Old Testament, uh, the simplest way is go to Deuteronomy 28, and it'll show you the covenant blessings and curses. And it says clearly, hey, Israel, you're already saved, Okay. You are saved, you are my people. If you want to flourish in this world, here's how you should behave. You'll receive these blessings if you behave this way. Not for salvation, but life will go best if you follow this plan. If not, here's the curses. And so, for the blessings in Deuteronomy 28, 1 and 2, it says, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that, um, that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Okay, and the curses come in verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And so they have these curses and blessings. Israel comes in this psalm 
with very clear expectations. It's, it's actually written so, so wonderfully, terribly, wonderful, beautiful. <laughs> so I know, paradox, but it's wonderful and it's haunting. So in the, it begins like this. The, the psalm begins with Israel saying, here are our expectations of you. And they say, we have heard about from our parents and our grandparents. They've said, this is the sort of God you are. And that's the first three verses. This is who you've been. And this is almost like when, you know, when a couple is going through divorce or struggling, they often come and they'll say things like, she's not the woman I married. When we got married, he was supposed to be like this, but he's changed. And there was this expectation that they feel is now broken. And Israel comes and says, listen, we've heard who you were. We've heard what you've done in, in the Red Sea. We've heard about these things. Our grandparents told us. And then it goes on, verses 4 to 8, and says, and we believe it. We actually trust it. We believe you are that God. We know that when we succeed, it's you, and when we fail, it's you. We understand. We believe entirely. And, but here's the problem. It says, but there's a reality. In verse 9, it literally says, but. We, we know who you are. We know who you've promised to be, but you've rejected us. And the word reject there is the word zanah in Hebrew, and it means to expel. It's an activity word. So it doesn't just mean that God has re- uh, neglected them, you know, the way a parent might be looking at their cell phone at a park and the kid falls off a slide. Um, <laughs> like, that would be neglect. And that may be part of it, but Israel's saying, no, no, it's not just that you're neglecting us. You've pushed us away. You've thrust us from you. So it's pretty, it's pretty damning accusation. God has rejected us. And he goes on even more, and he says, it's not even that, it's far, it's far worse. And they become very litigious. The psalm is very litigious. If you're a lawyer, you, might even, you may notice it if you look. It's all about you and we. It's no intimate language. They never use the covenant name Yahweh in the psalm. It's always God. It's a formal protest, right? It's no part, no, no, you're not daddy. You're the, you're the, you're the defendant. So it's a very formal language here. And then... They, they list out all the wrongs that they have experienced, and they, so many. They suffered disgrace. They've had to retreat in battle when God had promised he'd be with them in battle. They've been slaughtered, sent to slavery, experienced derision, scorn, mockery, taunts, all of these things that they shouldn't be experiencing, they don't think. And then it gets even more, more damning, because then they say in verse 25, and if you, if you were careful, you may have noticed it, when, you're, when I was reading it. But verse 25, it says, For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our bellies cling to the ground. What does that sound like? If you're a Christian, you know. It sounds like the curse on the serpent, doesn't it? And it's on purpose. Israel is so angry. They're saying, you have left us, rejected us. Not just that, we are experiencing the curse that the devil gets. <laughs> and that's pretty intense. And so what they are not, not and it's not veiled in any way, they're saying, all of this, and verse 17, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. So you see what they're saying? You're the blame, God. We've done everything right. All this is, we're experiencing the covenant curses, but we deserve the covenant blessings. And Israel is very upset, okay? Upset with God. And remember, God doesn't say, stop it, not true. And here's one of the things we have to remember as, as Christians, when the Israelites and when David especially says things like, I am innocent, understand he doesn't mean he's sinless. Israel was not stupid. They, had, they knew the, the golden calf story. They knew they were not sinless. When a Jew says, I am innocent, I have not forgotten your covenant, it's not because they think they've never broken the covenant. What they're saying is, no, no, the covenant says that when I sin, I should do things to be atone, have my sin atoned for, and I've done it. I have followed all the steps you've asked. And that's what they mean by righteous. They don't mean sinless. 
And so they're saying, we haven't broken the covenant. You have. You've charged us too much long distance, and we haven't made any long distance calls. Right? That's a very not serious example. Um, and that's what they're saying. You're treating us like covenant breakers, but we are, tro- we are covenant obeyers. And so God is silent. God doesn't show up. And this is the terror that we have to deal with all through Scripture. And when we talk about the book of Judges in the New Year, you're going to see it's even more prominent. God doesn't show up. He doesn't stop like he does in Job and say, you've spoken wrongly of me, you've spoken rightly, and so on. He's quiet the whole time. This psalm ends eventually with no assurance that God heard them, with no assurance that he's going to act, just them saying, well, save us. They just pray. They just have to to rely on faith. And this frustrating silence of God is difficult. If you've ever gone through suffering, deep suffering, and you don't know why you're suffering, then you know how hard it is. And if you want to be really aggravated, read a small book called uh, The Trial by Franz Kafka. It's a bit nerdy, but it's small. And in it, this story, it's 70 years old, so I can give some spoilers. Um, In it, there's a guy named Joseph. And Joseph finds one day he's arrested. And he doesn't know why he's arrested. So he asks the policeman, why am I arrested? And the policeman says, it's above my pay grade. Talk to the judge. And when he gets to prison, he talks to the guards. He talks to the chaplain. He talks to everybody. And everybody says, I don't know. Talk to the next guy. Next guy. The entire book goes through, and you never know why he was arrested. Never. And then he dies at the end. He gets shot. Sorry, spoiler. So the entire book is this agonizing. Don't read it. It's horrible. It's, ag- it's wonderful, but it's like, oh, because any reason would be better than no reason. Even if they said, yeah, yeah, you returned your blockbuster video late 25 years ago, and, and that's why you're in prison. Anything would have been a better answer to suffering than no answer. And so he's terribly frustrated. Israel is terribly frustrated. And when you don't have an answer as to why you suffer, you become disillusioned and you start to think life is meaningless. This week, I've had somebody I spoke to who, whose life has taken a turn. And don't worry, they're not in this church, so I wouldn't say how would be betraying anyone's info here. And they're struggling so much. And one of the comments they made was, the things I used to do to feel better when life got hard aren't helping anymore. Because they were coping, right? You go out, you buy something, you buy a car, you go have a midlife crisis or whatever you do. We all have things that we do to help us cope through suffering. But what happens when there's nothing left to help us through suffering? Then it's either, either suffering is meaningless, it has no meaning, which is what a lot of people lead to, like Marion Fontana that we talked about earlier, or you become disillusioned. God, to heck with him. I'm going to protest. And so... Here we are in this issue. And the question that we're left with after this protest is this. Do we suffer unjustly? Is God a tyrant? Are we suffering even though we've done nothing wrong? That's the question we're left with the protest. But the psalm moves on to the demands. Israel then says, okay, so we have a, here's what we demand of you, God, because you're obviously not the God we thought you were. This becomes their closing argument. And their protest is almost complete. So what they do is they lodge three accusations against God, and they demand three things from him as a result of those accusations. Pretty straightforward. The first one is this accusation. You have slept when you should have been attentive. Verse 23. You're sleeping. You should be awake. That's accusation one. Second one. You've hidden your face. Remember the, the Aaronic blessing in number six? You've caused your face to shine upon us. They're saying, no, you've turned from us. So you're asleep. You've turned away from us, 
And the third one is, if I can find the right page, you've forgotten us. The covenant says very clearly you should remember us, and you've forgotten. So you're asleep, you've turned from us, and you've forgotten us. And then comes the demands. In light of those accusations, God, awake. Wake up. It's pretty harsh, isn't it? Can you imagine walking up to God saying, wake up, sleeper? Boy, it's harsh. And you'll notice Israel does not have a problem doing this, right? And, it's, and we do. We struggle. You, you, you're probably even thinking now, should I be talking this way to God? Well, Scripture does. But let's go even further. Next one. Come to our help, he says. Say, so you've turned your face from us. Well, turn it back. You said you would. So what they're doing, remember, this is a covenant. They're saying, we have a deal. If we do this, you'll do that. We're doing this. You've not done this. And remember, God doesn't say they're wrong. But we'll get there as to why, what's going on. The last one is, redeem us. And this, it's final appeal. The question, again, we're not sure. Did God hear it? We don't know. God never shows up. Often in the Psalms, you hear David say things like, um, you have heard me from your holy hill, right? It's none of that here. So we're not sure if God has even heard. So what the Psalm ends with is them saying, redeem us for the sake of your, covenant, of your steadfast love, your hesed. If you've been here for two years with me, you know the word hesed. It's God's loyalty. See, when two people get married, um, you're not married because of your passion for each other, right? You don't pledge your passion because that will flare out. The reason you get take vows is because a marriage covenant is a promise of future love. When you're not as handsome as you were, if that happens to men, that yeah, should be funnier. Sorry. No, but when that happens, a, a covenant is a pledge of future love. When I don't want to love you in sickness and health and richer and poorer and so on, that's when I'm going to love you. And so this is what God, they're saying. They're saying, well, we can't, we don't know if you're hearing us. It doesn't look like it. So all we can do is appeal to the covenant. Redeem us for the sake of your own love. Your own character has to be. Uh, there's no other reason that we can see why you should, you should care about us except for the fact that you said you would and you don't lie. So don't lie. That's pretty harsh, but that's what they're getting at. They don't know what else to do. And so this is a people who, although they're complaining, have a no-exit strategy. Because if they did, they would have ended the psalm saying, we're done with you. We'll go seek Baal and Moloch and Marduk, these other gods. But they don't. Instead, they fall back on the covenant, which is what faithful people do. I don't know why you're doing this, but I know we have a deal and you never will break it. So don't break it. And they have no exit strategy. And so Israel's protest is unanswered. There's no assurance. And there's no promise of salvation. There's no doxology of hope. It ends with simply an appeal that they make to God. And so we have the two points, protest and demands. The protest is you might be unjust, God, because you're not doing what you should be. The demand is start doing what you said you'd do. Pretty harsh. And it ends like this, right? But then... We have hope. There is hope because God does respond in this psalm and it's so subtle and the poor Jews couldn't have seen it as clearly as you and I can because we're on this side of the resurrection. Okay? So the hint to what's going on here and why they're suffering even though they don't need to be. And let me be clear. I believe wholeheartedly and so do every scholar I've read that Israel here is justified in what they're saying. Okay? Not that God is unjust but that they have not done anything to incur God's wrath. Every scholar says it's true. And the reason we say that is because Paul tells us so when he quotes this psalm. But in verse 22 of this psalm, it says, let me pull up that psalm again. 
Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I know when you think, What's, how does that offer any help? Well, here's how it offers help. Israel, when it's suffering, 2,500 years ago, at, late, at least when this was written, maybe earlier, we, Israel had not, didn't have the benefit of the cross. So when it's, in, when it's facing suffering, it doesn't know, uh, the nation doesn't know, the people don't know, how else to receive suffering other than God might, must be angry with us. And, but the re, I think there was reason they could have seen it, but it's a lot easier for us to see because we have the cross. And I think I've said this to you before, Augustine said that the Old Testament is a very well-furnished but poorly lit room. And so the light of the New Testament has to be led into it so that we can see it more clearly. And so let me say first what the Jews could have seen here and then what, why we can see what this is all about, why they suffer, and why we suffer seemingly unjustly. So first thing, in a very short, my last quote of the day, is C.S. Lewis. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I'm assuming, even if you're not a Christian, you know that uh, story. But in it, Aslan, the lion, decides he is going to die for the sake of Edmund, this boy who has sinned. And because this boy has sinned, the white witch, who is death and hell and, and, and uh, this, this demon figure, this devil figure, says, aha, the boy has sinned and he's mine. So I get to kill him now because he sinned. And Aslan says, yes, you do have a subject, but take me instead. Kill me instead. So she kills Aslan, thinking, great, I've done away with this great lion, and now I can have the world. Obvious parallel between Christ dying for our sins. But after he was raised, after Aslan comes back to life, the two girls who are there, Lucy and Susan, speak to him. They say, what's going on? We saw you die. Why are you alive? And here's what Lewis writes. Though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a, a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And so, Israel, when they're enduring suffering, the Bible is what, has what they call progressive revelation, meaning you learn more about God and what he's doing in Christ as you read the chapters from Genesis through Revelation. So Israel is midway through, if you want to use that language, this revelation. So they don't see the cross in its clarity. They couldn't. But if they had looked back, if they had looked back and understood, which I don't begrudge them because how could they have seen it without Christ? It's easy for us to see it. But if they had looked back at Genesis 3, they would have seen that God says very clearly when he's cursing everything, everyone. He says, I'm cursing it. I'm cursing this serpent and humanity. However, the serpent one day will be crushed. Remember that bit of hope. Genesis 3. The serpent will be crushed, but in being crushed, he will crush the one who's crushing him. In a nutshell, he's saying, hey serpent, sin, death, you will one day have your heads crushed, but in order for me to crush it, I will be crushed. So already in Genesis 3, we are seeing substitutionary atonement, this idea that sin will be dealt with, but only at the cost of the one who pays for it being crushed himself. It's the same word when it says you'll crush your head, and he will sting his heel. It doesn't say sting, it says the same word, crush. So to crush sin, God must be crushed. If Israel could have seen that through the lens of the New Testament, they would have seen that suffering brings redemption. That suffering isn't always meaning, it's never meaningless. It's never, it's not about just uh, randomness. That there can be redemption 
through suffering, which Israel didn't see. Israel thinks if they're suffering, it must be God's anger. But the reason we can know that this is what they should have seen is because Paul will quote this passage. In Romans 8, 35-37, here, is what, if it's up on there? I do have it up there. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long, Psalm 44. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so, see what's going on? Paul is saying something very clearly. He's saying, hold on. You are not, God isn't going to save you. You're not a conqueror as God delivers you from your suffering. Right, Israel? You're not conquering when God um, uh, saves you in spite of your suffering. That's not what God does. Instead, Paul says, you are more than conquerors in your suffering. And what, so here's what is being, Paul is noticing. Nothing can separate us from God, even suffering. And the reason is this. You as human beings, as Christians, if you're a Christian, if you're a Jew in the, ancient, in the Old Testament, because you have chosen to identify with God, you will suffer with and like God. Israel was suffering not because God was angry with them, but because they chose to be, they were called to be God's people and they elected to be God's people. They stayed. Because you want to be identified in the world as God's people, you're going to suffer like God. Christians, if you identify with Christ, you will suffer with and as Christ. You'll be hated sometimes, though you've done nothing wrong. In fact, in the New Testament, it's very clear. Remember that great hymn? I, hope the, I don't think the team's singing it. I'm sorry, I, didn't, I should have prepped them. In Christ alone? And on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Meaning, if you're a Christian, if you are suffering, it is not because God is angry with you, because there's no anger for you left. All the anger that God had for you as a sinner has been poured out on Christ. And so, here's the assurance you can have that Israel couldn't have. It, could, it couldn't have known entirely. So they had to just trust, right? They had no exit strategy. I'm just going to trust God because I don't know what's going on. You and I, with confidence, can say, no matter what diagnosis I have, no matter how miserable my life is, it cannot be because God is angry at me. It can't. Because on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. There's none left. Your suffering cannot be because God's mad. It can only be because he's trying to make you more like his son. And that may not make the pain easier, but it should make it endurable. It even gives you a chance where you can praise God through the suffering, which Israel does regularly. And that is something we don't often see mentioned here. And when Jesus then on the cross protests, when Jesus is on the cross and he cries, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, right? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's lamenting, right? He's lamenting and God doesn't answer him. And because Jesus' protest is unanswered, your protest is answered. So you and I will suffer. It's, it's, we see it. But we don't need to suffer without hope. We don't even need to suffer as Israel did entirely. We ultimately want to do what Israel did. We want to fall back on the covenant. Because I assure you, there's going to be times when you're not going to understand what's going on. And at very least, your theology needs to be strong enough that it can sustain the shaking. Poor Marian Fontana's couldn't. And I say, I mean that. Poor, I, I, let's pray for Marian Fontana. We want to have a theology, a half of faith that can weather any storm, any storm. At very least, like Israel, where we rant and we cry and God says, let me have it. I can take it. Let me have it, but only lament within the covenant, not outside it. 
And this is what we're being called to do very plainly here. If you're a Christian, feel comforted. It's okay to yell. Christ can take it. If you're a skeptic, you have no assurance that your suffering is going to be redemptive. It's very simple. Your suffering is meant to rouse you to God if you're a skeptic. It's not meant to hurt you. It's meant to rouse you, to wake you up to see God. If you don't accept God, you're going to suffer like the person I spoke to this week who has said, I don't know how to deal with it because my coping mechanisms are gone. You're going to think you can cope with it, but one day you won't be able to. There's no way to escape the harshness of suffering without a way out. And God is the only one who's provided it. So protest God if needed, but do it within the covenant as Israel did, knowing that there's no anger left for you. It's all been poured out and picked up by Christ. Let's pray.